the Buddha is famous as a teacher for his use of skillful means. And over and over again, when questioned, he made it clear that uh, he's not really a philosopher. He's not trying to give the complete and comprehensive picture of the nature of reality. He's more like a doctor trying to heal people of pain, of sickness. And so what he says and does has that end in mind. Uh, you have stories of uh, the woman whose young child died and who uh, refused to bury the child and came to the Buddha wanting a miracle, wanting the child to be restored to life. And the, the Buddha said if, if she could find a mustard seed in some household where there ha that has not known death, then he would be able to bring the child to life. And of course, it was impossible. Everyone has known death. And over the centuries, not only in Theravadan Buddhism, but the Tibetan tradition with uh, the Zen tradition, very rich, in the teachings that are teachings and practices that in one sense may not make so much sense, and yet they're designed at a certain point in time to accomplish something. And when you start to teach, you soon learn that if you just teach a mechanical, uh, just portray the, the principles of the Buddhist teaching in a mechanical way, uh, you actually undermine the teaching and so that each person's, each person has to be understood as an individual. And that's part of the reason that individual interviews and not just interviews, just getting to know each other is so important. So skillful means is um, even uh, up to our time now, there's a, without mentioning names, a, within the Buddhist world, a, a disagreement as to whether anatta, which is one of our hallowed concepts, not self, whether that's an ontological statement about the nature of being, or is it just a skillful means? Look, just see, see it as not self, whatever it is you're talking about. If you can do that, then you'll, you won't attach to it. You won't identify and attach to it, and you won't suffer. Of course, it can be both. But there's a strong uh, emphasis on pragmatism and uh, the use of myths and legends and over, the, over these few thousand plus years, uh, very rich literature, probably most of you know about the Milarepa story. And, there are countless other smaller ones, and as, as mentioned, the Zen tradition is very rich in sometimes what seems to be um, silly or nonsensical, but really it's designed to have an effect, to accomplish something in a person's practice, for us to move along. Dharma teaching in the midst of a retreat is a lot like that. These are not trade secrets, I mean, it's just probably obvious to most of you if you've sat a fair number of retreats. If people are very discouraged, then you want a talk that's very uplifting. If people are all over the place agitated, you need something that's a little more soothing. People are cocky and think they're really, uh, really someplace. 
and you have to do something else. Uh, if it's hot and people are sluggish, whatever. So you see what I'm, what I'm getting at. Um, here are a couple of other examples of skillful means. Um, the content isn't as important as if you understand that some things work and some don't for particular people. And I'm, this evening I'd like to talk about the four messengers, the four messengers that's part of the um, Buddhist legend when the Buddha was still Prince uh, Siddhartha. And that it might help some of you and it might leave some of you cold and that's fine. But let me tell a story first that uh, perhaps is questionable about um, skillful means but from a couple of angles I think it, it's a kind of a slightly warped skillful means. Uh, in uh, Eastern European Jewish humor, uh, if you listen to enough of these stories, and I have, uh, I'm not going to detail all of them, but there are two main categories. There, one is about God, conversations with God, disappointment with God, and what to what to make of Him, Her, It, why things aren't going the way they should, and the other is uh, another main one. There are others, but. Uh, mother-son relationships and all that. Um, has to do with anti-Semitism. In other words, the Jews in Eastern Europe felt powerless because they were powerless. That's why they felt powerless. <laughs> and so humor is highly developed as a way of uh, salvaging something. And uh, so there, there's a lot of anti-Semitic humor, but there's also a lot of pro-Semitic humor which makes everyone who's an anti-Semite look stupid. And it makes, of course, the Jews look very smart. The best one that I know of this sort uh, comes out of uh, the Russian uh, Yiddish literature. And a, uh, an officer of the Tsar and, a, Jew and a, a Jewish traveler get on the train at Moscow and they're heading to they get on the train of Moscow and they're, they're heading for St. Petersburg. So a Jewish traveler and an officer in the Tsar's army uh, get on this train going to St. Petersburg. And they're riding for a little while and then the, the officer starts a conversation with the Jew. He says, uh, what is it with you Jews? You're so clever and so smart. How do you get to be so clever and smart? So the Jew says, well, we eat a lot of herring. So the officer says, oh, is that what does it? He says, yeah. He says, do you have any herring on you? He said, I do. He said, would you like some? He said, yes. He said, well, it's, it's 25 rubles a herring. Okay. So the officer in the Tsar's army says, pays the 25 rubles and eats the herring. And then he's, ab he's about to ask for a second one. And then he he realizes, he says, wait a minute, it's only, it's only four rubles in Moscow. And he says, see, it's starting to work already. <laughs> yeah. okay. It's a slightly uh, malevolent, warped, skillful means. Although it's very skillful from the Jewish point of view. 
In this legend that has come down to us, as probably most or all of you know, uh, the Buddha is born into a, uh, into a, a kingship. And his father finds out from the astrologer at, uh, when the Buddha was born that he's either going to be a great sage or a king. And the king doesn't want him to be a great sage, as probably most parents don't want their children to be uh, monks or nuns or sages or anything like that. Just be a king and be satisfied. <laughs> And so, as probably you know, he goes to all kinds of lengths to uh, give the Buddha a life that's uh, protected so that he won't develop uh, a spiritual dimension. He shields him from all kinds of adversity. And to get to the main point, the Buddha is living in the, a palace where uh, he doesn't know the outside world. And he has everything wonderful in the upper story of the palace that he's staying at. Every compartment of life is taken care of in a, an extraordinary way. But one day he hears that there's a lot of beauty outside as well. There's a, the grounds of the palace and a wonderful park. And so he asks his charioteer to take him for a ride. And they don't travel very far when he sees an old person. Uh, decrepit, bent over, uh, no teeth, uh, just having a really hard time with a, a stick, uh, moving very, very slow, uh, slowly, the senses not working too well, uh, rather pathetic. And the Buddha asks his charioteer, oh, I, sh I should, uh, it is a legend, and that's why it's a skillful means, and that skillful means don't have to be true. Uh, according to the story, um, when the king heard that his son was going to go outside, uh, he had the entire area uh, disinfected, so to speak. There was no uh, elderly, sick, or dying people around. Anything that would uh, touch the Buddha, that would uh, awaken his compassion or his uh, deep sensitivity, was kept out of sight. And one uh, a deva... Uh, saw to it that the Buddha needed this for his education. That there was a, an old person. And the Buddha looked and saw the uh, painful state of this uh, elderly person and asked the charioteer, is this something unique to this person or does it apply to all of us? And the charioteer said, uh, I'm sorry, but it applies to all of us. No one's exempt from this. Everyone who's born must get old. And it really hits the Buddha, and so he doesn't continue his journey. He doesn't want to explore the rest of the park. And he goes back to the palace and reflects and meditates on this. And as the story goes, as I think you know, the same thing happens in regard uh, to a sick person, someone who's uh, tremendously sick and uh, dramatically so, the Buddha sees that, and also a corpse. But then the fourth messenger, uh, in the midst of all this suffering, at a certain point when the Buddha goes out, uh, he sees 
what you could call a wandering yogi. Uh, someone who's in meditation, who has a very serene countenance, uh, seems fulfilled, at peace, uh, kindly, uh, gets to know him a bit, questions him, and so forth, goes back, and as you know, as the, the story goes, uh, the rest is news, the rest is history. The Buddha leaves the palace and uh, emulates that person goes on his own journey to become a wandering yogi. Now, because it's a story, it has to be uh, personified in a certain way. It certainly doesn't mean that if you become uh, a wandering yogi or a monk or a nun, that you'll never get sick, old, and die. I've, any of you who have spent time in monasteries know that I, monks get old. So do nuns. And they get sick and they definitely die. So it doesn't protect you from that. It's more uh, a personification of a mind state, of a way of living. Uh, so that it, here's a person who in the midst of old age, uh, illness, and death is serene. That is, the yogi is. And so the question is, how, how do you do that? How do you get, how do you get there? And the, the gist of the story is that the Buddha, in seeing the suffering that human beings, all of us, must go through, at least the pain that must visit the body, everyone's body must age, it must get sick, it must die. But for perhaps most of us, that's all that happens. The, the psychological relationship to those physical states is comparable. And not only is the body uh, in pain, but the mind is as well. And yet this uh, meditator is not. And in one sense, you could, on a literal level, you could say, well, the answer is to become, leave home, as this person was a wanderer. Leave home, become a monk, drop it all, because it, it doesn't go anywhere. And uh, the best thing is to become a celibate monk, have no property, uh, no sexual relationship, eat one meal a day, and so forth. And that's my, my way of seeing it, one strategy to meet this situation. And for many people, it's, it's proven to be a very extraordinary and useful strategy. And it survived to this day, monasticism. And uh, what the Buddha was searching for is, is there anything that isn't subject to old age, to sickness and death? Is there anything that is not subject to decay? Is there some place that is free from birth and death? And the answer is the practice. That's what finally this is about. You didn't know that's why you came here, perhaps. And also, perhaps you're wondering, why is he talking about old age, sickness, and death? This is my one retreat of the year. It's already hot. Can he talk about Anapanasati, the breath, and how you get peaceful and everyone's so happy? This is about happiness. It's exactly what it's about. But you don't get happy through delusion. And so what the, the story is, and it's a skillful means to uh, wake us up, because uh, this is not about the Buddha, it's about us. When you come to a retreat of this sort, you have left the palace. 
because you're daring to practice. You're daring to look into yourself. All of what we've been saying now is, uh, is, is part of a very, uh, very important Pali uh, concept called Samvega. Samvega uh, means the urgency of practice, the urgency of, of the yearning to practice meditation when we realize um, how fragile and uncertain life is, when we realize how perishable everything is. It's not just the physical body. Everything comes and goes. Now, this is not a pessimistic message, certainly not optimistic, I guess, but it's a true message because everyone agrees. We all know this is so. And all it's an attempt to do is by uh, awakening us to the sense of the truth of this, that each one of us doesn't have forever. We're on this planet for a certain period of time. It's rather brief when you come down to it. And what do you want to do with your time here? How do you want to spend it? How do you want to live? So it forces us to ask these important questions. And of course, in a Buddhist context, in a Vipassana meditation context, there's only one answer, right? Practice, for goodness sakes. And it's a skillful means in the sense that uh, sometimes, and for some people, this reflection about the fact that all of us are subject to aging, sickness, and death, all of us, if you're born, you must go through these. It's to get us to uh, arouse the energy to practice. And that's what a retreat is. It's an attempt to uh, simplify our life so dramatically. And basically, if we look at it without any ideology or, or jargon, what are we doing here? these days. We're not allowed to speak. We've left so many of our comforts at home. It's good food here, and we do our best. It's clean and so forth, but it's uh, piddling compared to what we know probably as Americans outside of here. And we're encouraged to keep silent. So what's left? We're stuck with ourselves. All of us wandering around here, this band of gypsies, wandering around, each one of us stuck with ourselves. And we can't do a lot of things. We can't get into a relationship. We can't get into a fight. We can't watch TV. We can't read. Used to be a library here. People could kind of sneak in. I don't know what you're doing in your room, but you know, you're, not supposed, you're not supposed to be reading. That's a leak, a leak of energy. So essentially, this is an, the know thyself, which every culture seems to value, but which so few of us do. There aren't long lines of people queuing up to know themselves, but we like to say it. Every university loves to put it in some building, but I don't see people doing it, because if we did do it, the planet wouldn't look this way. So that's what we're here for. We've cut off a lot of escape hatches, and each one of us is encouraged to be with ourselves as we are, moment to moment. And there's a technique and method and 
Corrado and I sit up here like we're, you know, we're beyond all this, and we encourage you. But it's a one useful way, one skillful means, to try to help us penetrate more deeply, uh, and perhaps uh, become that that wandering yogi that was meditating. Now, to clarify this, it has finally, in a profound sense, has nothing to do with whether you're a lay person or a monk, whether you're a man or a woman, or any other social category that you wish to give me. Those uh, we leave behind. Because finally it has to do with either you're free or you're not, either you're wise or you're not, uh, what the official resume says about who you are, whatever that resume is, it's just the resume. And at this time and place, and I don't know where this is all heading, it seems like, at least in our own tradition, there, is, there isn't a huge interest in becoming monks or nuns, sometimes for a short period of time. But there's a growing number of lay people who are really willing to practice hard. Now, I don't know if this is a trans- we are a transitionary form, and eventually it'll go back to the way it's mainly been for centuries, monks and nuns, with lay people bringing the food and the medical supplies. Personally, I hope not. That's my own prejudice. Not, I would like to see the monastic tradition flourish, but I think it's time for lay people to grow up, too, you know, to take responsibility for ourselves and not to expect someone else to do it for us. Moreover, in this culture, at least in this country, but I think it's true of the modern West, we have the leisure and all kinds of conditions that perhaps make it possible for a layperson uh, to practice. And here, practice doesn't mean that you uh, leave your husband or wife or partner and all the rest, but it does have to do with how you relate to them. Because samvega, or the urgency of practice, is a conversion. It's a conversion of the mind, a conversion of the heart, where your priorities totally switch around. And they go from a life devoted to egocentric gratification. Just whatever makes me happy is good. To something else. Whether it's called the unconditioned or nirvana, original nature, true nature, the unborn, there's so many words for it. And that's what we're here for. Uh, Let me start laying that out, just in terms of the concrete aspects of what we've been doing since Friday evening. How do you get to be somebody who can live with some serenity and peace? And maybe a few of us will break through even beyond that. How do you get to be that kind of a person in a world where everything is falling apart? And it's always been falling apart. Well, this is one, one recipe. It's not the only one. And step number one, as we talked about last evening and as is relatively easy to maintain on a retreat, is ethical training. Can we refine the way we relate to each other and to the world? The precepts in the, in the Buddhist language. And then to continue the teaching of the Buddha, 
can we calm and concentrate the mind so that the mind uh, is not so stirred up, does not spend so much of its, its time either in restlessness or dullness? Can the mind more and more uh, spend time fresh, alert, with a keen interest in seeing things as they are? Because that's what brings the freedom, not willpower. It's understanding, clear seeing. Insight is vipassana's clear seeing, sometimes called extraordinary seeing. And then inside itself, taking the mind that has become somewhat calm and clear and taking a good look at the nature of this mind and the nature of this body to see what it is. Uh, we won't have time this evening, but I, I'm going to link up some of our practice with uh, these four messengers. Uh, the practice as it stands is preparation. Even if you didn't, never heard of, of what we just said this evening, if you really do the practice, it should be easier for you to age. You should have more resources when you're sick, and you should have a greater likelihood of, of dying in a coherent way, perhaps even fulfilled. That possibility is at least uh, increased. And, of course, it's the journey itself. It's not that we have to run after some fanciful, full enlightenment that we have concocted out of our mind, in the meantime, wasting our life, making it grim and joyless. As some people put it, lighten up. That is, the path, pursuing the path wholeheartedly is joyful, even when it's suffering you're dealing with. There's something fulfilling about it. Now, I'm speaking this way because everyone in this, on this retreat is supposed to be people who have had some practice. Uh, and so, uh, Samvega is to get us to use these nine days really well. But let's come back to the simple way in which we began last evening. Just take a simple in and out breath. What's happening there? Well, the words all talk about concentrating the mind, calming the mind, and that's actually what happens. I assume that all of you know that, that uh, maybe you don't have enough of it. Maybe you find it difficult that your mind is stirred up all too often. But I'm sure you must have had a glimpse that it is possible for the mind to become re-educated, to actually learn how to prefer a simple in-and-out breath to worrying, hating, hankering, uh, all the things that minds do over and over and over and over again, out of control, without being known, and which bring with it incessant suffering. And yet we choose that. We prefer to get attached to these mind states than to take up a simple breath, which we know brings such peace and joy. Now, this is one of the teachings in the, let's say, the creation of this yogi, the fourth messenger. One of the things that I think can be learned as you stay with each in-breath and out-breath is that uh, perhaps simple and natural is good. Our 
life has become very complex. Our society has become very complex. Even before the internet, we've been very complicated people and getting more complicated all the time. And often when things don't work, we then look for complicated solutions. Could it be that a simple in and out breath, learning how to trade in all of those preoccupations of the mind that we've been uh, cultivating for years and years, the same old, no one tells me what to do, wait till I see him, I'm going to tell him, rehearsing what we're going to say at the end of the retreat, uh, something that hasn't healed for 10, 15, 20 years or more, and yet we grasp onto it and we let it burn us and bite us. And we have the option to just say, oh, thank you, but no thank you, I think I'll just go to the breath. At a certain point you begin to learn that. Isn't that interesting? Something we're already doing, it's just in, out, in, out, not much to it, just like fresh spring water, not very colorful, rather unassuming. You mean to say that this might be more valuable than anguish, plotting revenge, rehearsing what I'm going to really say to straighten that person out when I come back? Yeah, it might actually be a more useful way to spend your time. Oh, but in order to do it, you have to become preoccupied with the breath rather than with the other stuff. And little by little, we may see the tremendous beauty in just rhythmical breathing, just sitting and being alive. And that is expressed through breathing. It's not a concentration exercise. That's one way to look at breathing, but what a trivialization. Oh, I'm doing it. It's a samadhi exercise. Yes, it is, but it's also contemplation the fact, contemplating the fact that you're alive. And if you listen to the instructions that Karada and I have been giving you, we've been, I think, emphasizing, and we'll keep doing it, to leave the breath alone, to just allow it to unfold in its own way. Don't try to fix the breath. Don't try to make it be a special way according to some design of breath therapy or whatever. Uh, why? Well, we're learning the art of allowing when we do that. Also, when we allow the breath to just unfold in its own way, uh, there's more going on than you think. When, as you learn to do that, you're starting to uh, weaken the power of the ego. The ego is the doer. It always wants to be in control of everything. And as you know, once people find out that the breath is really valuable, that it has some cash value, then there are all these problems If I can't just let the breath unfold. I keep controlling it and trying to make it be a certain way. Yeah, I never did that before, but now that I heard, out, heard that the Buddha even attained enlightenment while breathing, uh, this must be a really important thing. The ego hears all this, you know, and it wants in. And then we have the same problem again. So if you can learn to just allow the breath to just, just unfold, just naturally, just as a part of nature, simple, ordinary, commonplace, beautiful, uh, you're learning something that will have immense value. As you know, the instructions change in a few days. And for some of you, perhaps you've already begun, begun, and that's fine if you feel you're ready for it. Can we allow fear to unfold naturally? Can we allow loneliness to unfold naturally? Can we allow despair, grief, to unfold naturally? Because uh, if we can, then perhaps we're 
learning how to truly let go, not call it letting go and really uh, kind of push it aside. There's to allow all of these, in a sense, creatures that are living inside us to tell their story, to unwind, to run their course, and then we can be done with it. We can be free of it. So we're just still on a simple in-and-out breath, learning that sometimes ordinariness and simplicity uh, can be overlooked, but it actually has, can have tremendous value. We're learning how to permit things, to just be what they are, so that we can come in close, take a look at them, learn from them, become acquainted and familiar, and intimate. The practice, I think, you'll see, has a lot to do with intimacy. Intimacy with nature, with the world of objects, and of course, most of all, intimacy with ourselves. So we're, we're still with the breathing, uh, in learning how to surrender. I think all, all spiritual traditions recognize that that's one of the, perhaps the hardest thing to do. Whether you conceive of it as surrendering to God or surrendering to the, to the Dharma, you can make it even more concrete. You're surrendering to yourself. You're finally uh, allowing yourself to be yourself. You're allowing what's there to be there. It's practice in just being ourselves. Odd that we need to practice that, but we seem to. Also, there's even more in a simple breath, and we haven't even gotten to wisdom yet. Or have we? Maybe samadhi and vipassana are not so separate after all. Just in books, it looks nice. It's easier to learn when they're separate. We create a home. When you learn to drop into the breathing, in other words, as you know, at least many or most of us know, this is a skill that can be learned. And as you learn to do it, uh, you can learn to come to rest in the breathing. You have a resting place. It's not the ultimate resting place, but it's an awfully useful one to have around. It's a place that it's a kind of home. It's not the final home, which is not a place or a thing, but it's a in the Thai forest tradition, they liken it to uh, if you don't have some degree of samadhi, that is, if the mind has not calmed and concentrated itself, if it hasn't learned how to do that, it's like being a homeless person. You're subject to all the elements. Your possessions are vulnerable. You're vulnerable. We all know it can be not much fun to be homeless, even if it's just by observing those pe- uh, people who are. And in their teachings, we, the, just the simple breath awareness, as you learn how to do it, at first it's a, a kind of a, a bamboo house that protects you from the, from the rain and gives you a, an enclosure to uh, seek some consolation or uh, to rest, to refresh yourselves. And it can become even a brick house This is valuable because there are times in life when we are being overwhelmed. 
when if some uh, teacher or teaching say, well, you report that you're frightened and you feel a lot of fear or loneliness or you've had a loss, a death that's big, agonizing, and the teacher says, well, just watch it, just be mindful of it. If you do, that's the wisest thing you can do. If you can stay with it, see into it, see its nature, that is the most practical and kind thing you can do for yourself. And we nod and we, perhaps we even know it's true, but we can't do it. Perhaps not at that time or at that place. But we can turn to our old friend, the breathing. We can calm down a bit, refresh the mind a bit, generate some new energy, and perhaps come back to that which finally must be seen directly and intimately. The Buddha was known as somebody who had mastered come what may seeing. You just give that a few moments reflection. Come what may seeing. Picture if we could be aware of whatever came in front of us. Picture if our awareness was stronger than whatever comes in front of us. That it isn't pushed around. Of course, finally, even death. Picture if we could die, as we at least read in the books, people do die, even joyfully, aware, in harmony with nature, in harmony with something that must happen. I'd just like to, we were talking about death, and I'll go into aging, sickness, and death, and mainly on this retreat, it's not, to, if you, it's not about hospice work or all those other wonderful things that this kind of training can lead to, but it's to, to shed light on life, reflection on, on aging, sickness, and death is definitely part of Anicca, the law of impermanence that we hear so much about and spend so much time uh, learning about. But impermanence is not just bad news. Or just because something is impermanent doesn't mean it's worthless. Uh, we're all impermanent. Are we worthless? Uh, people you love are impermanent. Does that mean you discard them? Oh, you're going to die on me anyway. I better check out. Well, sometimes our emotions are like that. But that isn't what the teaching is. And so, uh, in the process of just ordinary practice, from time to time, the reflection on the fact that we don't have forever can perk you up can give you energy you didn't, you didn't know you had. In my own case, you know, there are all these antidotes to when you get sleepy. You know them probably as well or better than I do. Visualize uh, sunshine in your skull. Uh, sit up straight, put energy in your body. Throw cold water on your face. Do fast walking meditation. They're all useful. What works for me best is I contemplate my own death. Wakes me right up. But not always, only about 80% of the time, because I'm just not a good practitioner. It doesn't always work, but there's something about it, uh, and I've been at this for a while, that it brings a lightness uh, with it. It's not morbid at all, but you have to go through a phase where it seems like it might be. And everything we're doing here, and I hope we can make this clearer in the, uh, as, the, as our retreat unfolds, 
is not only designed to help us live correctly, to live in a full way, but it's also will help us to die because they're really not different. Life and death are walking hand in hand right now. I was given this teaching by Munindraji, Anagarika Munindra, who some of you know, he was my uh, first Vipassana teacher from India. And I, even then, this was, I'm not sure, if, I don't even think IMS exists. Yeah, no, it had just started. And I had asked him for teaching about uh, how to die, in other words, how to, how to die in, a, in alignment with the Dharma. And he said, you're already doing it. So just you're already, your practice just as it is, uh, learning how to be aware of what your experience is right now, being mindful of the particular objects that make up consciousness at this moment. He says, all that's different is that at that time, you will be dying. And it will be a moment just like this. It will be a real moment in time. And the challenge will be to stay awake and mindful and equanimous just as it is right now. So that everything you're doing has uh, value for now and in quotes for then. Anyone want to buy some of my herring? <laughs> okay, could we have a, a moment's silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.